This is a podcast from the Queen City Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. My name is Logan, and you might be asking yourself, Crowncast, what is there to talk about in a nil-nil draw against DC United? What analysis could there be? You could argue there wasn't football. You could argue that the only thing Charlotte FC does is tie matches. And really, a lot of your arguments would be correct, but we still like to break it down. We still like to get into it, and we found a few things we think are worth mentioning and worth your time. Worth your time today is you and Hello Ewan. <laughs> yeah, hopefully so. Hello. you <laughs> uh, and you're always worth my time, buddy. I want you to know that. <laughs> uh, uh, there we go. <laughs> yeah, you know, our, our chats, they, they're just near and dear to my heart. I, uh, I will give everyone a fair warning. This one might run a little bit short. Uh, we put a lot of extra time into a couple of other ones. So we're just we might just be balancing things out here. But one of the biggest questions that you know I have when we look at the DC match is you and the 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 chatter in the Discord, the the chatter between us was was when this game started, it looked super open. It was wide open, attacks were flying in every direction, every wing looked like it didn't have a defense. And our initial reactions to the match were as we're getting we're getting goals. We don't know how many, but we're getting a lot of goals. And then obviously it ends up being a nil-nil. So from your perspective, having gone back and rewatched it, what happened? Why was Charlotte FC so open? And why was Charlotte FC so successful in attack while somehow also no one, you know, actually hit the back of the net? <laughs> I think, I mean, we, we talked about the first 10, 15 minutes of this game being... It's just so open, so much happening at either ends. And I think you can explain that with two things, high high presses and high lines <laughs> for both teams. When you get both teams trying to press high and be aggressive in the way that they're closing down, whilst both teams are also matching that with playing their line very, very high to kind of keep the press you know, compact, what you get is a game like this where both teams are almost trying to out-intense each other and out-compact each other. And you're just leaving so much space in behind. It's it's the origin of of every chance in this game, pretty much. You see it for uh, Brant Bronico's chance where it gets deflected and hits the post. It comes from us uh, being aggressive in our press. We then manage to get in behind with a through ball that goes about 30 yards to Carroll. And he's able to play that inside first time. He doesn't even have to take a touch for it because he's just got so much space in behind uh, DC because they're playing high as well. And in recovery... We've talked about it a lot, momentum when you're defending, because DC are playing that line so high, they're running so far back to try and get into position, they end up, the momentum takes them so far away that there's Brent Bronico just inside the box to get a pretty clean shot away. Um, obviously, it was blocked, but clean in the fact that he was unmarked, really, when he took it. So the openness of this game basically came from that. Two teams playing kind of similar styles. I think DC went away from their standard style to start this game, because I don't think that they thought very much of us in our build-up. Um, and I don't really they don't really have much reason to. But it's two schools of thought. Some teams think, teams that are bad in build-up, just stay away from them, don't press. They're no good at it. They'll eventually launch it long. We'll get it back. Or some teams want to be opportunistic and think, they are bad in build-up, so let's go nick it off them really high, get a high turnover, and get ourselves a, a really good chance. Um, and that's what DC went with in this game. And you kind of saw why teams don't do that against teams that aren't very good in build-up. 
because you kind of give them an out, the over-the-top ball that worked for us, and just generally <laughs> playing it over the top, even if you don't get it, and then pressing off the back of it. So oh. after those, I was just going to say, after those 10, 15 minutes, both teams kind of adjust off the back of that and think, I don't think we have the intensity to carry this on. And also, I just don't like the fact that neither of us have control of this. All head coaches are control freaks. So adjustments are made from there and the game settles a little bit. Yeah, I, I think kind of one of the the things people don't talk about is that in order to get a game like this, you kind of have to get two teams that are kind of bad that also disrespect each other. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> when, when you look at the top end teams in the leagues, uh, and I'll use the Premier League for this example, Manchester City is a world-renowned phenomenon of dominance in football. Nobody goes to Manchester City and goes, let's just put eight people all the way forward at all times. Right? No one. There's not a team in the world. You can go to Real Madrid, and they are not going to press Manchester City that hard. Pressing that hard and that intensely and, and that strongly, it... I'm going to use it. It's a term, it's a version of disrespect to the club you're playing because it just means you can hold them in that box. And there are teams in the world that can do it. Manchester City is very, very good at it. Uh, Brighton, weirdly, is very, very good at it. There are teams in the MLS that can do it. But it's kind of the thing you do that says, hey, we are going to go and take over this game. We're going to own this game. And in order for both teams to do that, both teams have to kind of go, yeah, that other one's bad. We'll go do that, right? It feels, <laughs> it feels odd to say it, but most of the time what happens is you get one team who you know is going to have some dominance of the ball and another team who will either say, we don't think their dominance of the ball is, is dangerous. We're going to sit back and let them mess up. Or you have another team that says they're really good. We have to be super compact and really have the best you know, possible defense we can in order to absorb the pressure of a very good team. Getting that one where sort of both people are just standing out in the open, guns blazing, is pretty rare. And you're right, around that 15, 20 minute mark, I, I do think there's a little bit of like both coaches going, this is dumb. At some <laughs> point in time, yeah, we are legitimately just in a shootout with no control no matter what. Yeah, and there's I an adjustment made it... off the back of that, but I'll also say it's also just hard to play in that intensity just from a physical exertion level <laughs> when the other team's trying to match you that way. So almost it's like, you know, it's just hard to do in that sense also. Yeah, it takes a lot of energy. So it, it was interesting to see the game start that way because it's a lot of fun to watch. Like that is entertaining, if nothing else. Um, but the the lack of goals that came out of it and the lack of goals that that continue... I think one of the reasons that you brought forward to me as why we were so open uh, was some of the stuff that's happening with Andrew Privet. Do you want to talk about Privet? Yeah, we mentioned how Charlotte's playing a very high line to match its high press. Um, but one thing specifically that's happening is is that Andrew Privet is almost being given the defensive interpretation of a free role when we're uh, when we're defending against opposition whilst they're building up in the first phase, to just kind of go out and, and almost hunt for the ball. It's, a, it's I think this is a role that you've mentioned before that you'd actually like Carujo to play. I might be mistaken in that. Um, this idea of someone kind of having a free role to go out and just hunt the ball. Um, and, and this isn't a major departure from that, um, what's happening with, uh, with Privet. It's not 
free in the sense that it isn't coached. It's it's coached and it's it's also a man marking thing as well. It's an assignment which is usually uh, you know the playmaker, the number ten, who is going out and, and seeking out in these situations. Um, so it's it's another example of Latanzio's out of possession structure being very aggressive, being you know really risky, and when it doesn't work you can really tell um, that it's going to cause some problems. But for the most part, it has been kind of successful, which again, it's the dichotomy of some of Latanzio's out-of-possession stuff. It's generally quite successful, but it also comes with that risk of when it isn't successful, even if it's just one time out of 10, it usually results in a really, really good opportunity for the opposition to either create a really good chance or they do go and create a good uh, a good chance depending on, you know, just the quality of their players, because the openness of it is so, so difficult to deal with. Yeah, it's, it's one of those where I think you bring up a really good point about, you know, I talked to how I would have liked to see Carujo have the, the freedom to step up into the second line. And I think there are two really big separators between what I envisioned Carujo doing and what Andrew Privet has to do. I think that Andrew Privet is designed to be doing this in a system that is forward pressing and has the ball in their opponent's half. Privet is a midfielder where I think Andrew or where I think uh, Guzman Carujo is not. And I think Privet's responsibilities are cut balls out, but then distribute. He's almost intended to be another deep lying playmaker when uh, Ashley Westwood has to move up the field. Or uh, in other situations, he's intended to be another guy who can creatively break lines. And I think we're going to talk about a little bit later about Uronin, who is also capable of this and being given a very similar task, whether or not both of them being on the left side and both of them having the ability to step forward and freedom to step forward is, is causing us more issues. Maybe that's a whole other conversation entirely. I don't think Karujo has the distribution to do that. I think Carujo was much more of a, in a team that sits deep, that like sits behind and stays in a, I don't want to say like a 4-4-2 low block, but like a mid block shape. You could see Carujo very successfully cutting out danger and then passing the ball off for someone else to move it. Uh, I, I think Andrew Privet has a lot on his plate here, but you're right. I think him stepping up into that midfield causes us to be open. Any, any final thoughts on, on Privet here? Yeah, it's it's. Uh, it, I mentioned it's something that's similar to what we were doing earlier in the year with uh, Melanda when we had mm -hmm. the opposition playing early build-up and we had a man-marking assignment for Melanda that was bringing him quite high up the field. And just to can just to make the distinction, that was a situation where we were bringing in a winger onto a centre back, which meant that an outside midfielder was going onto a fullback, which meant that um, a fullback was pressing up further. And um, you know, striker on a goalkeeper, winger on a centre back, fullback on a, on a fullback, and then a centre back coming way out to a winger. This example is much more narrow press. This is Andrew Privet following his man in the centre of the field, trying to win the ball centrally. It's it's very it's very Red Bull traditional uh, school of thought. And I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Latanzio's getting back to. Well, not back to, but he's starting to do the principles, which he's always tinkered with a little bit. But I think mm -hmm. this is the full example of what I believe his is his football philosophy is, and this is the 
interpret uh, interpreted version of that Melanda pressing because it's centrally uh, focused. So just sort of an off the topic, you know, question for you, Ewan, because I do think we're seeing a more completed version of what he was used the phrase tinkering with. Are you happy to sort of see him say full sail to the wind on this idea? Like, are you happy to sort of see Latanzio say it's either going to work or it's not going to work? Full send? Or do you think that it needed more cautious tinkering before we went, we went to nine guys in the opponent's half? Yeah, I, I, I think with this, it's not the football that I would ideally like to watch or that I would want a team to play. But I think if you're a head coach, and you have a real thought out way of wanting to play. Like you have a real philosophy of this is the way that I think teams should play. This is how it should work. Then if you're compromising it with other things involved, then ultimately you won't be able to coach it properly if you don't believe it. I think that even though this isn't something that I would want to go with or something that I believe is the best way to play, if you do believe that it's the best way to play, you you have to go all in with it. Or else, if you're doing half measures, then there's going to there's going to be some confusion. It's not going to work if you if you're doing it well. I believe in this, but also I want to do this as well because I understand that maybe that's a little bit too aggressive. So I'm going to trim it back a little bit. Like if you believe in it, go for, go all out. People will disagree with it, but guess what? People disagreed with what you did anyway. People are always going to yeah. disagree with <laughs> what you do. So you might as well do what. Yeah, go out like go out and do exactly what you think the right thing to do is. Because guess what? People are going to disagree with whatever it is you do, whether you fully believe in it or whether you're taking half measures. Yeah. By the way, that's just a general piece of advice from the Crowdcast. Go out and be <laughs> you, whoever you are out there, unless it's like a murderer or somebody trying to break the law or infringe yeah. on the rights of others. <laughs> you know, like within the rules of society, go be you. Yeah. Uh, I'll say, I'll say as well on it that I do think that maybe this has been encouraged by the fact that his seat is getting hot and we're getting yeah. to the end of the season where maybe if we end the season and we're the 10 seed and they evaluate it and they say, listen, we're going to go in a different direction. Thank you for your efforts. Maybe he's just feeling that and thinking, well, I don't want to have this. I don't want to have my first head coaching opportunity, have it for over a year and never do exactly what I think the right thing to do is. So maybe that's what's pushed him in this direction of going all out with, with this uh, style of play. I think that's maybe what's happened. Yeah, I'll be honest. I wish we'd seen it sooner. I mean, I talked in one of the previous uh, podcasts about the fact that statistically we had to sort of separate out four games ago from the rest of the season because of how how vast the changes were. And I, I do wish we'd seen it sooner. I think this was Christian Lantanzio kind of being able to go and and sit on his seat and and draw his sword. And if he dies on his sword, he dies on his sword. But I appreciate that I see that because I think one of the the issues I saw in the past was that we would see half of the team try and commit this press, try and do this midfield work and half of the team hold like a really defensive shape and they just get their lines separated and they'd get run through in the middle. We talked about it all the time that for some reason, Charlotte FC had no concept of keeping their lines together. And because the actual date of this recording is post the Philadelphia game, we now have an example of where, when we get pushed back, we do still some have, uh, sometimes have difficulty holding our lines together. But in the ones before that, our lines looked a lot more connected. And as a result, we managed to hold the ball in the other team's half a lot more. I'm, I'm glad it happened. Whether or not it was the right move, time will tell. Uh, because that was not actually on the docket, because we, we just ended up talking about that one. 
I I want to jump to uh, Enzo Capetti. And regular listeners of the podcast will know I'm not usually the guy jumping up and down going, Enzo Capetti should get flowers. Enzo Capetti should get flowers. I think his performance in the DC game was one of the best performances I have seen from him. And I say that under full knowledge that he didn't score a goal, which is what you would expect of a striker. But there were a lot of things about it that I really liked. And it has led me to this question of, or maybe not this question or revelation, but this solidification of the idea that a key has to fit in the system. You cannot take a key for your house door and expect it to open your door at work. You cannot take uh, your grandmother's shed key and use it to unlock a bank vault. Keys are very specific things, and players are very specific people. And if you get the right player into the right place, you really get the chance to see them shine. And I liked Enzo Capetti in this one so much, I really struggled not giving him a crown. Because we talked about this a bit off mic, Enzo, the way he holds up the ball isn't, this is intended to be a compliment, it isn't dynamic. It's, it's sturdy. It almost has some of the same feeling of Derek Jones, how when he gets the ball, it's going to stick there. And I think that in the past, when we have seen the ball go over the top and get to him, we were playing a style of play where he didn't have anyone around him. So when he was a rock, he was just a lone rock in the middle of the other team's defense. Whereas once we started playing with more people pushed up, up, up the field, we saw him have more options. And while he was holding the ball, the rest of the team wasn't figuring out, well, is he going to dodge right? Is he going to dodge left? Should I make a run for him to start to play the ball over the top? They said the ball's going to stay right there. And he's not going to lose it. So what can I do to help him now that I'm close enough to actually be of aid? And what we saw is that his pressure and his holdup ability and his drive and guts and all those, you know, fancy words that don't actually mean anything. They draw in defenses. They make defenses focus on him. And I don't necessarily love that he didn't get to the final piece. But he did everything but the final piece, the best I have seen it from, uh, from Enzo Capetti. Ewan, thoughts on Enzo? Uh, am I seeing this with rose-colored glasses? No, I, I agree. I, I thought he was really good in this game. Um, and I think it almost links back into the first conversation we had about how the setup of, of DC United, what that was in this game, of that high press followed by fairly high line. Because when you're playing against a team that's playing with a high line, the last thing you want is a striker who's interpreting interpreting the role in the way that Svidersky does, who I think is a better player than Capetti. But if you already have a field that's feeling compact when you have the ball and there's a lack of spacing, you don't want your number nine, the last, you know, your last man, to be dropping short and offering for the ball, to be coming into the midfield and, and looking to dictate in the way that Svidersky does. The way to you know, combat a, a high line is someone, you know, who you want to, who's happy to hold up the ball, like you mentioned, someone who's more active to make a run in behind rather than come short for the ball and dictate. And that's what Capetti is. And and in this game, I think that's what showed because he was a constant threat and doing exactly what DC United would have hoped he wasn't doing. 
because he was creating so much more space for other players in a way that if Svidersky was up front, maybe wouldn't have happened. We talked about after this game how good Brek Diagra played, and that's because Brek Diagra is a great player. But it was aided by the fact that Capetti was happy to just play in between the centre-backs, play his role where he knows he might not get a load of touches, but just keep out the way, keep things spaced, keep the centre-backs away from from the areas where the ball is. Don't bail them out by coming short and meaning that a centre-back can come in and join in, maybe even do a little bit of pressing if there's a bad touch here or there. And then the other centre-back can come in and that area is now really condensed. So... Your point of, of keys having to fit properly is a really good one because, like I say, I think Swiderski's a better player than Capetti. But for a game like this, against that kind of team, it helps you a lot to have a striker playing the way Capetti did, happy to run in behind, happy to be the last man, rather than someone who might get frustrated by their lack of touches and try and get too involved in the game. So you and I've got a question for you on Capetti. And that is... I think one of the things I'm coming to appreciate about Capetti is that in super small, tight spaces, he's a 6, 7 out of 10 player. In medium space play, he's a 6, 7 out of 10 player. And in big, wide open spaces, he's a 6, 7 out of 10 player. Whereas when you look at other people on the front line, uh, I'm going to use Ben Bender, for example. When you look at Ben Bender, when he's got big open spaces, he's a 9 out of 10 player. When he's got medium spaces, he's a 7 out of 10 player. And when he's touched tight against someone, he's a 0. 0 is is aggressive. Obviously, he's an MLS professional. He's not an actual 0. But he struggles significantly. When you look at somebody like Karol Schroederski, when he's touched tight to someone, he's a 5 out of 10 player. When he's in big, giant, wide open spaces, he's a 5 out of 10 player. If you get him in the medium zones, he's a 9.5 out of 10 killer. Right? Is there something about Capetti that just feels like you know he's going to be able to handle the job no matter what the job is? Yeah, I think, like you say, there's a high floor with him. And I think that high floor of, of performance comes from the fact that he plays the, the he plays the position the way he does. He does the simple things very often. It's also, we talk about it now in a positive way, it also might be the reason why other fans have have issues with him because when you sign a player for that much when you sign a striker for that much you're expecting you know fireworks to come with it you're expecting you know a little bit of this and a little bit of that and you know just kind of this someone who might be able to take over a game when the reality of it is more the fact that we've sat he costs that much because you know he's a good finisher good instincts good hold up play and he's happy to just be a complete striker which is not going to help you wingers by the fact that, oh, he's going to be playing through balls them all day. He's going to be dropping deep and dropping him over the top and get his wingers in one-on-one situations. It's by the fact that he plays the role in the traditional sense and just creates spacing for everyone else, which is one of those things in football, which is, it sounds easy. Like, as a striker, just stay high and be in between the centre-backs. But there's a lot of strikers who don't do that well. And Capetti is someone who does it really well. And it's not something which stands out that obviously as a positive trait. But I think people are coming to appreciate it a lot more as we go through the season. So, because at this point in time, I'm just taking all of our plans for this episode and I'm balling them up and I'm throwing them out the window because I think we have more interesting (laughs) things to talk about. Um, One of the things that has become a trend in world football 
is striker isn't really a glamorous position anymore. If you go back to the Thierry Henry days, uh, you know, striker was the guy. He was the gold star. He was the one with the Ferraris. Striker or or she, they were the ones with uh, with the glory. And if you look at a lot of the modern teams, Manchester City notwithstanding, uh, a lot of the modern teams use striker as kind of a water-carrying position. They have to do a lot of dirty work that doesn't necessarily get noticed, and then they still have to go try and score goals. A lot of the glory in football has kind of been pushed out to the wings for attackers and onto late-running attackers. You know, is there an element of maybe some of the credit we should be able to give to this guy is that he's willing to pick up that extra load and not just be the glory man? Yeah, I think the the bit that you mentioned there in terms of world football and that it becoming a water water carrier position and uh, glory being taken away from it has come from the fact that out of possession stuff has just become so important and has become the overhaul of the last sort of five, ten years, which you can trace back even further. But in terms of it being caught up in the mainstream, that's now you know, everyone has their out of possession plan and it's very meticulous. And that's probably why he's someone that Charlotte targeted in the way that they did because the scouting department will have all the, you know, the young players that they target. It's like, Oh, this guy, you know, we're bringing him in for this much. We think he can develop Capetti and how much he cost is a overall decision, which Latanzio would have been very involved in, in a way that I'm sure he isn't involved in with the youth players that we sign and everything like that. That is a all in decision that is trying to follow the philosophy of the head coach and the general philosophy of what, the front office are trying to do and what you mentioned there I think fits in with that the fact that this is someone who is able to hold position well and do out of possession work he he just he fits it in a way that we we've we've been through a a funny season in terms of the way that we've set up in a lot of ways and we've been ever changing with a lot of stuff and like we mentioned earlier, we're now at the stage where we're playing the football that we think Latanzio absolutely believes in, with a striker playing the role that Latanzio <laughs> absolutely wanted to begin this season. So I I do think with Capetti that, and not to lean off um, last week's episode a little bit, but we're talking about guys who have a big last few games coming. Yep. If If he can carry on playing like this, then it might be the thing which ends up saving Latanzio's job because he is the spearhead of the direction tactically of what he wants to do. And if he can... It's massive for the front office that the biggest signing that they've made so far, whether it's him or Svidersky, I'm not 100% sure of the numbers, it's massive for them that fans start to think, yeah, that was a nice signing. And if Latanzio can get that out of him, I think that's that's massive for him. Are people at... I mean, I know there's, there's a very strong backing of Capetti, but there's also a fairly strong section of... Capetti might not be the guy. I think he's going to need to keep putting in performances for a while before there's kind of a groundswell across oh, yeah. the board for him. And, and he's, a, he's a striker as well, so I'll just say, like, goals oh, yeah. goals as well, aren't they? Like, yeah. be as good as you want out of possession. Yeah. You're not going to win everyone over until the, the ball starts going in the back of the net. Yeah, if, if he gets 35 goals between now and the end of the season, one, we're going to make playoffs, <laughs> and two... <laughs> Sign me up. Like, it's, that's, there's a really easy way to my heart as a striker. Score a million goals a season. I, uh, I'm i going to push this along to another position I think deserves some talking about. 
And we were going to talk about Brant, but I think we'll probably talk a little bit more about Brant next Wednesday. So uh, let's take a look at the left back position. And for a while now, uh, we have had this conversation of left back isn't getting it done. We're getting run over in left back. Left back is having all of these problems. Why hasn't it, why hasn't Charlotte FC gone and signed a left back? Zorin even went on to a, a interview and discussed the fact that they'd approached three or four different left backs who, for various reasons, ended up at other clubs or couldn't turn, come in because of visa issues, etc. Left back has traditionally been an issue for Charlotte FC. And then we get this guy come in, Udonin, and he just sort of slots in. And my experience of him has been he's done an okay-ish job. Not outstanding. I feel like he makes a fair number of mistakes, but I don't see the mistakes being like fatal flaw mistakes. I don't see him badly giving away the ball into positions that are extra dangerous for Charlotte. At the same time, I don't see his left wing side is locked down. I, you know, I still think that attackers look at that left side and go, we're going to get joy there, and often they do. And so this is a 29-year-old, and Ewan, thank you for reminding me of that, because for some reason in my brain, I, I think of him as much younger. This is a 29-year-old. From your perspective, what challenge is he facing coming into Charlotte FC? And should we start to be looking at him as somebody who's doing a really good job in his position or as somebody who can go on and develop? Cause we've kind of just looked at him as well. He's there. <laughs> yeah. He, he's someone who, like you mentioned, 29 years old, really experienced player. You think of him in the same way that maybe you do with a guy like Ashley Westwood and Scott Arfield and uh, Nathan Byrne in the idea of, okay, this is an experienced pro. He's just going to go in that position and it's just going to be, you know, all fine because they're so experienced. You know, they're just, it's, it's the easiest thing in the world to them. Just a different team, same position. But we know from, from what we've seen with Charlotte this season and what we've talked about, that this fullback role is a departure from what fullbacks will have been used to their whole career. And the guy I mentioned there, Nathan Byrne, it's been a, it's been a process for him as well. The fact that he's been playing as a fullback his entire career and now he's had to play this new interpretation of it. The difference being, at least in terms of this season, that we had a whole preseason, whole off season for Nathan Byrne to get used to this role. They've been doing practices and everything, the preseason games, to get him used to the idea that of that fullback inversion, and that's how we want to play. Yara Erinen is someone who has come in in the middle of the season and has gone into that role and is having to play this interpretation of it. And he's having issues with it positionally because it's almost inevitable that he would. He, as a, play, as a player who's played left back for his full career, and that role being fairly similar from team to team, it's just a, a case of whether you want to overlap or, or, or a manager wants you to overlap less or, or whatever it may be. He's now playing this role for us, which is the way that football's heading the inverting fullback and what that means in defensive transition and what that means, what you want players to do when you get up to the final phase. He's playing the same position, but he's it's not really the same position at all. So where I've kind of landed with it is when he signed, I watched a lot of his games from Schalke and I was really impressed with his technical level. I thought he was a really smart player. 
and I think he'll be a good signing. I just think these last this last part of the season, hopefully he'll improve with it at it as we go. But this interpretation of the fullback role is so different from what he'll be used to that it might be a case of us seeing the best of him next season. Like I mentioned, hopefully he can improve as this season goes on and he gets more used to that role. But it might be a case of us getting the best of him next season when he gets that full preseason and full off season to work at this new role. If Latanzio is still here, <laughs> it has to be yeah. mentioned as well. <laughs> if if Latanzio is still around to demand this role, I I do think it has to be said that what Christian Latanzio is demanding of his fullbacks is the top end of the game modern fullback. It is a very challenging, exposed position that requires fantastic te- technical ability, excellent passing great defensive senses, uh, and the ability to run harder than almost anyone on the pitch. Fullback has traditionally been a very up and down the pitch. You sort of stay on the byline and run up the byline and run back down the byline. And and it has really evolved from that, from people who, and again, we're talking about the top level of the game, these fullbacks are doing this. It's evolved into people who have to be comfortable moving into the center of the field and playing with people all around them. It's a different challenge. It's a, it is an explosively difficult challenge. I'm using the, the levels of challenge are exponentially higher when you know that you have you know, essentially one side of your body that people can't attack you from. Fullbacks are being asked to do this now. The best fullbacks in the world do this. What Christian Latanzio is asking is real. It's feasible. It's just what's being asked by the best teams in the world. And this guy has come in, and I think I've been a little bit harsh on him because he's come in, keep in mind, chronologically, I just gave him a card last night. Uh, he, has, he has come in, and he has been expected to take over this role that, to my knowledge, at Schalke, he didn't have this interior inversion, correct, Ewan? Yeah, that's correct. It was very traditional left back, very much play wide in possession, overlap. So, so technically, I think he's reached about the same point I would consider Andrew Privet, who also has a very similar step up the field position. I think he's reached about the same level as Andrew Privet in being in the right places and making these technical passes and controlling the ball. Except he's done it in what three games, four games? You in how yeah, many games yeah. has he now been? I think it's, yeah, I think it's four. I think he's right. Yeah. Um, so in reality, what we're getting out of him right now may not be nine out of 10, 10 out of 10. But if you factor in sort of the adaptation period and what he's been expect, what has been expected of him, I think you actually probably have to give this guy some, some flowers. Maybe is flowers too strong, Ewan? Do you feel like he deserves some credit? Do you feel like, he deserves his place and to continue to learn. Yeah, I definitely think he deserves to keep his place, a hundred percent. And in terms of, in terms of just like giving him true credit, I think it's almost, <laughs> it's almost a case of less giving him credit and more just giving him, you know, a little bit of a, a bit of a break in terms of yeah. the potential lapses that come, because. Like we say, it's the new interpretation of the role and there's going to be some bumps in the road. But overall, I think Latanzio looks at it and says, although that it's a new interpretation of the role, I think this guy has a high enough technical level that that will offset the fact that he's learning this role and he's actually a positive player for us already 
by that fact, even if there are going to be some hiccups in transition and things like that. And hopefully we get to the stage as we go, you know, two or three more games that he's really going to get a knack for it. And like I mentioned, we get to the preseason, the off season, he can learn it, study it a lot, and he can hopefully just, you know, take to it with flying colors because he's got the technical level to be able to do it. So uh, keep, we'll keep in mind that literally legitimately last night after the Philly game, I've, I carded him for getting <laughs> caught out quite a lot. Now that yeah. I have given him a card and we're immediately talking about all this stuff, uh, what a difference 24 hours makes. It, it is amazing. Uh, or what a difference it is just being in the heat of the moment right after Charlotte FC throws another two goal game. Yeah, I, I need to stop. I, I want to ask you the question from what you've seen so far and what you know of the player, do you rate him for this position? Is he the type of guy you're going to say he's going to get a, a preseason under his belt? He's going to get an offseason under his belt. And I think he can do it for the next three years moving forward. Or do you think this is a stopgap? I think that he's good enough to play this position in in MLS for a very for a very good team. I am very much on the high side of of him as a player. You know, if we if we're picking sides at this stage, I'm I'm very pro, um, very pro Irinen. So yeah, you can chalk me down for that, and uh, we'll see what happens. <laughs> I'm just gonna I'm just gonna write write it on the board. You know, of, of <laughs> yeah. all of our, our all of our beliefs. I am still very much on the fence on this player, and I realize I try not to be on the fence, and I tell you guys to try not to be on the fence. But really what I have seen is him doing a functional job. And I haven't seen horrible out of him, but I also haven't any seen that that sets my heart ablaze, if you will. So I think I'm just going to have to see more. And if I don't see development, I'm going to be coming down on the side of this isn't the right long-term guy. But where he is now... What has been expected of him in the time he's had to achieve it? I don't think I can reasonably say this guy's not good enough. I think he needs more time to bet in. And even without the time, he's giving us sixes, six fives, which I think in that left back position, we would have all bitten your arm off for not that long ago. Uh, you want to you wanna move ahead to the Cincy preview? Yeah, yeah, all good, all good. I'll just say it's um, it's, it's it is three games that he's played so far, not four. That's my bad. So, uh, oh yeah, just yeah. just three games. That's not a lot of minutes. <laughs> let's uh, let's move it along and talk about Cincinnati. Uh, you in Cincinnati is a uh, an MLS football team, which I am remiss to admit is very, very, very good, and probably I'm sure you're going to tell me otherwise but probably this is going to be one of the ones that we shouldn't necessarily have our hopes that high for yeah it's it's funny with Cincinnati because I feel like all all MLS fans are pretty familiar with how good they are hopefully they've had a chance to catch a few games of them playing because they are pretty much the cream of the crop of the season and playing them away on paper does not seem like something (laughs) <laughs> does not seem like a game where you look at that and think, yep, chalk that down as a result for us. That's one where we can get something out of. But I, I almost feel like it's focusing away from just the points total that they have and how good they've been. And this may seem a little bit negative. There's a stylistic issue with the way Cincinnati play that is going to give Charlotte issues. Even if Cincinnati were just a run-of-the-mill mid-table team. I think they're sty- I think stylistically they're a bad matchup for Charlotte. 
Uh, and the main reason that I say that is because this is a team that's pretty happy to play without the ball and play on the counter, despite how good they are. They are very happy to base out the pitch in possession, which is going to drag Charlotte out of that narrow press that we've just spoken about Latanzio really wanting to do. And also, they're really good at being compact defensively, which, you know, we 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 have Fidersky playing in the number 10 position. We, whether it's Diagora or Justin Merrim, we have a left winger who is wants to play on the right foot and will be coming inside. Ben Bender is probably going to keep his spot on the right and he's a left footer who wants to come inside. So I just think, even if you take away from the fact that Cincinnati have been the best team in MLS this season, stylistically, this is almost a bad, a bad matchup for Charlotte as well. So although that's not that positive, I just that's kind of how I read this. And anything can happen in a game of football, but I was trying to come up with ways that how can Charlotte attack Cincinnati and really, you know, give them issues? What what's a little chink in the armor that we can figure out here and um and and create an opportunity? And I am struggling to find it. But I do think that if we are a little bit brave with the lineup and if we do go with the more traditional wingers, notably Kerwin Vargas or Kamil Juzviak, who people are a little bit, you know, out of favour with at the moment. I think that's the way that we can get at least a good result, a draw out of this game. And I'll be excited to see the lineup for this one because if we do go brave with the lineup and we do go a little bit more traditional with the wingers that we play, my hopes will be up way more than they will be if we bring out an unchanged side. Yeah, this is a good team. And unfortunately, like you said, they're a good team that is comfortable without the ball. And they're not just comfortable without the ball in a like, oh, hey, we know that our counter is so good that even if you break us down once or twice, we're going to get three counterattack goals. They're a team that their defense is solid enough that they just kind of expect nobody's going to score on them. And people do occasionally get through their defense. But, you know, if you look at even the most basic stats, they're the second best defense in the league at the moment or the second best defense in our conference at the moment. They have only given up 33 goals this year. And what they haven't done is they haven't just wildly outscored teams. They don't get a lot of like five zeros or three zeros. They get a lot of two one wins or one zero wins or two zero wins. So this is a team that really doesn't run hot or cold. They're almost mechanical. They know how their game plan works. They're going to get a few good chances. They're going to finish those chances. Uh, Luciano Acosta is a very, very, very good footballer. And that doesn't talk, doesn't even mention the, the rest of the team around him. They have the ability to hit you fast on the break, which hurts for Charlotte FC. And I think the thing that scares me is they just feel like a machine. Ewan, does that feel like a, a decent way to describe the team? It just feels like a machine that knows its purpose. I think that's pretty much perfect. <laughs> this is this is a it's a well-oiled machine. Everyone yeah. is very very understanding of their roles in this team. They have good out of possession structure. They are really good, like I say, at playing compact and taking your best playmaker and making them as much of a non-factor as possible. So that's why I say that I think we should go out and be brave with this lineup. It's almost threefold because 
I think that we need to be brave with the lineup so that we have real match winners there out wide because I feel like that's what you need in a game like this against a team that plays in that style and is that well-oiled machine that we mentioned. I also think that it's useful because Cincinnati are a team that play with wingbacks. And I think if you can get really good traditional wingers playing against a team with wingbacks, you can create a little bit of uh, of, of confusion for them. You have uh, wingbacks communicating with outside centre-backs. He's your man, no, he's my man, that kind of thing. You can create a little bit of havoc like that. And also... The reason why we don't play with traditional wingers at the moment, at least in my opinion, for the most part, is that we are very interested in the out of possession stuff, as we always are, and as we've talked as as or and as we've talked about on this pod. But they're a team, like I say, not too keen about kind of keeping the ball and building it up and and cutting through you that way. They're very much happy to play on the counter attack and. It's almost it, it's worth the risk to sacrifice that out of possession stuff against a team like this, so that you have those match winners on the wing. I mean, here I am talking about that it's a good thing that Latanzio is going all in with his philosophy, and I'm telling him to change it. But I don't <laughs> think I don't think you have to completely overhaul and change it just to have Kerwin Vargas in the team instead of Ben Bender. I think you can still go with the philosophy that you believe in overall, but have a match winner in there and just say to him, listen. This is our in-possession stuff. I know how you can affect a game, but just please, today, that wing back. Go, go after it. Just I am know, gonna, please go with him. <laughs> I'm going to step in. I do think it's funny that we, we spent this time talking about the fact that we told we said Latanzio should be going after his style. And in this one, we are kind of like, look, you're probably not going to be <laughs> able to do that. Uh, I, I am going to go ahead and start to wrap us up. I'm going to give you my sort of thoughts to look out for in the next one. Obviously, we mentioned that it's possible Ben Bender holds his space. I haven't actually seen any updates on his injury, whether or not he came off the field and, you know, they said, we better just get you off and make sure you're fine or whether or not, because he did pull up off the ball, which always scares me. Um, you know, most of the time when people get hit and they go down, you know, you get sort of this feeling of, well, it could not be that bad and it just feels bad. When people pull up off the ball, it's, it's usually pretty bad. If he is not good to go, I think everybody needs to keep their eyes on Kamil Yuzviak. I do think it's going to be Kamil. If it's not Kamil, maybe that's an even bigger statement of concern. I think Kamil's kind of in the last chance saloon now. I think he's lost a lot of the fans. Not that anybody hates him, but nobody is out there going, Kamil's the guy. Nobody's out there saying, Kamil Yuzviak is the one I believe is going to take us to the top. right? I think he is, for his Charlotte career, in a place where he needs to go make an impact repeatedly. And he's, if Ben Bender is not available, he's going to get one of those chances that you never really liked to get because it meant your teammate got injured, but you have to go make the most of it. So he's going to be my thing to watch for this next one. We'll go ahead and begin to wrap it up. Uh, first and foremost, thank you so much to you, Ewan. Always a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, thank you to you, our dear, dear listeners. If you have decided to spend your time with us. We love you. We mean it when we say it. And if you want to follow us online, you can find us on Twitter at the underscore crowncast on Instagram at the underscore crown underscore cast. And that's it. We're going to go ahead and wrap it up and we will talk to you again after we definitely go take our next three points from Cincinnati. Goodbye. QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com.